Now, let me uh, jump in here to Isaiah 54. I'm going to just read two verses, but as uh, Ben already said, we'll go through two chapters, actually, Isaiah 54 and 55. So I'll read two verses, and then we will pray and seek to not only learn, but apply uh, God's Word. The Word of God, Isaiah 54, verses 4 and 5, says this. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your, hus- for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. Let me pray. Father, you are that God. The one that we bring all of our lives to. The one who invites us to come just as we are, not to fix ourselves up. You are the God of the entire earth, the maker of all things. And your word tells us how you don't tell us to just fix ourselves, but how you sent your son so that sinners might have hope, so that sinners might be made new, that we might be redefined and given new desires. We might ultimately come and be satisfied in you. So I ask, O oh God, that you would truly humble our hearts in this moment. You've done a great humbling work just to get us here. And now we ask that our hearts would be ready to receive what your Holy Spirit wants to speak to us through your word. And I pray, I pray for protection against just trying to get mental knowledge about you. And I ask that you would, as we know you, it would run through our hearts and give us a confidence that propels us to risk and to love. Lord, please help us to be hearers and doers of your word. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I remember over the summer when I would look at my children and unbeknownst to them, I had a surprise. And I would tell them, kids, today we're going swimming. And all of a sudden you'd be like, woo! yeah, okay. And so they would sprint. And the next thing I know, faster than they've done anything in their lives, all of a sudden they have completely disrobed, put on their swim stuff. They've got goggles on and like they're ready. You know, I barely had time to breathe and they're all down in front of me. Let's do this. Okay. Similar things happen around Christmas time. Okay. Christmas is tomorrow morning. If you say that, all of a sudden they're ready to go to bed. Never before in the history of mankind, but now they're ready to go to bed. And they sleep like five minutes. Is it time now? Right? So they wake up early. The excitement, the adrenaline is rushing. Why? Why did my kids run out, have the swim stuff on, and ready to go? Because they took me at my word. Why when I say Christmas is tomorrow morning, are they so excited they can barely contain themselves? Because they took me at my word. As we look 
at Isaiah 54 and 55, God is giving us his promised word. The word that he says will come to pass. It will succeed. It cannot be thwarted. It won't be empty. It will deliver. But there is a grand canyon size difference between knowing facts about God and his word and loving that God and having a confidence in his word that leads to immediate action. And what the book of Isaiah is inviting us into are three things. God's promises made in Isaiah 54. The illustration, as we then remember backwards to Isaiah 53, we see promises kept and secured. And then he thrusts us forward to Isaiah 55 and he invites us to take him at his word, to act, to do what he says he's going to do. And so we pursue his promises. We say, yes, I believe you. Your promises have been made in Jesus Christ. You have kept and secured your promises. So now I will act. I will pursue your word. So let's dive in together. Promises made, Isaiah 54. And now we read these words, Isaiah 54, verse 1. It says, Sing, sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor, because the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Now, what is happening here? Well, first of all, we must understand that this is poetry. In poetry, it uses concrete images, images that are common to everyday life experiences, images that you can kind of touch and, or taste or see or feel, images that are really clear to communicate a spiritual or an emotional message that is meant to affect your life. So now he brings up this picture, this image of a barren woman. And we've got to ask two questions. Who is the barren one? And why does he use this image of a barren one to affect the reader? Well, the first question, who is this barren one? Well, all throughout the chapters we've been reading, we have been understanding more and more how God is addressing the people of Israel, how they were rebellious, how they went against God's ways, how then therefore they were punished and they were exiled underneath, this is history, underneath the captivity of Babylon. And that was a punishment by God to show them that rebelling and walking away from God, not worshiping God, has devastating effects on their lives. Their lives were a drama it was a movie, a play about their spiritual condition. Their actual steps into Babylon, the actual oppression was a real life drama of what was happening in their heart when they walk away from God. It leads to exile spiritually. It leads to a sense of desertion. And then God in his kindness, he sent a victor, a deliverer, a literal king named King Cyrus of Persia 
And it was King Cyrus who put down the enemies of Babylon, who raised up Israel. And King Cyrus said, Israel, you can go back to your homeland, the land that you were promised, and you can rebuild the walls of your city, especially rebuild the temple. And so as we look at this passage, we have to see both how he is addressing the original audience and then also how it should affect us as the reader. For God has us all in mind. The barren one then is Israel. Now why does he use the image of barrenness with Israel? When the Israelite would read this concept of the barren one, they would have three women in mind right away. The first three times this word barren comes up in the scriptures as in the book of Genesis. The foundations of their existence were built upon their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And those three men's wives, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, were all at some point barren. They all were categorized as barren. And what did barrenness mean to those women? It was a putting in jeopardy the promises that God made to Abraham that he was going to take him, use him, and multiply his name through their offspring to the ends of the earth. You kind of get the picture? If you're barren, you don't produce offspring, therefore there's nothing that furthers. Barrenness put the promises in jeopardy. And so Israel now, finding themselves in captivity, yet they're supposed to be the light to the nations that God keeps his people. The promise seems to be in jeopardy. But for God's namesake, he says, I will deliver you out of here. You will no longer be the barren one. You will no longer be the desolate one. You will produce many offspring. In other words, the circumstances are going to be reversed. I'm going to work something new. So you see how he's taken this image and now he is showing through that image that his promises will not be undone just like it wasn't with Sarah and he gave a child to Sarah just like it wasn't with Rebecca or with Rachel. He gave children to them and his promises kept going. Israel, the barren one, they will give birth, so to speak. They will be delivered and his promises will be kept for them as well. However, Barrenness is not just a fact. It's not just a fact that she cannot bear children. It's an emotional fact. Anybody who has struggled to get pregnant, anyone who knows someone who wants to have children and they are barren, unable to conceive, it is not just a fact. It is an emotional one. She is not just without children. For some people are glad to be without children. That's their life choice. This is a woman, this is a woman who can't have kids, and she's without children and wants them badly. This issue of barrenness is not just meant to bring up a, a fact, it's meant to strike the emotions. Strike the emotions that this woman, what she wants so badly, she cannot have. And men and women alike can identify with wanting something badly and not having it. 
These are the emotions that the reader was supposed to feel. God's promises are in jeopardy, and yet Israel feels alone. They feel sad. They feel like they long for something, and it's not happening. And then they're told to sing about it? That seems almost cruel. Sing. Why sing? Because God is going to reverse the situation. How will he reverse the situation? Isaiah 53 Isaiah 54 comes right after the blood-soaked pages of Isaiah 53. And it is the death of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners like us that set free the barren one and bring forth the promises. Why should they sing? Because God has not forgotten his people and he proved it through the death of Jesus Christ. Why should they sing? Because God keeps his promises. Isaiah 62.4, it echoes these very verses and it says this, You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her. God says, the reason you'll no longer be barren is because Something's changed. The something that's changed is the promises of Isaiah 53. And now my delight is in you. That's why you should sing. My delight is in you. Now, if you jump down to verse 4 of Isaiah 54, what you will see then is the opposite of singing or exuberance or excitement. It is fear. It is fear. Just like the barren woman is afraid that she will never be able to have kids. She will never know the joy of children. So the people of Israel are afraid. They're afraid of what's going to happen when they follow God. Okay, God, this is the same thing that happened in Egypt, right? God, I followed you, but then I ate worse. And then I'm standing at the edge of the Red Sea and all there is is water on this side and all the Egyptians bearing down on this side. It went bad for me. There's fear. But we know the story. God ultimately delivered. But what I want us to walk through is what I think the book of Isaiah does to attack their fear. He gives seven blows to the fear of not just the people of Israel, but to you and I. So what I want to do is I want to walk through those seven blows to our fears. He says, fear not. And then you read this phrase, for you will not be ashamed. Whenever you see this word for, it can mean several different things. The word for can be used as a means of um, further explaining a concept. But the word for many times is used as a reason for why you're doing what you're doing. I went to the store for some groceries. I went to the store because I needed the groceries. Okay, so it has a, a because or a reason. And what you will see all throughout this is for, 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 for. And these are reasons we should not fear. So let's just look at them. Fear not for you will not be ashamed. What's the fear here? We're going to take every fear, apply it in its context, 
the people of Israel, but also then expand it to us. The people of Israel were afraid that were they to leave the Babylonians, there would be a sense of, they would be mocked by outside groups. There would be a sense of, maybe it's not going to be worth it. Maybe I'm going to have a letdown. It's just going to be like a bummer. I followed God and, uh, I'm afraid that it's not going to be worth the sacrifice. This is the first fear. And it's a fear that some of us have. It's a fear that some of us have. That either people will mock us for our faith or that our faith is kind of, is it just hocus pocus? Is it just kind of fragile? Like, is it really worth sacrificing our life for this God? You will not be shown to have been foolish for worshiping and walking with God. This passage is saying, you will not be ashamed. Promise. Therefore, don't fear. Hear this. There will be zero chance of a letdown when you stand before Jesus Christ. Zero chance. There will be zero letdown that you have lived your life fully for the sake of God. You have worshipped Him and walked with Him. Zero letdown on the last day. You might, as you are coming near the end of your life, you might have regret upon regret upon regret. But on that last day, what really mattered will rise to the top. And you will be able to say, every moment I gave for Christ, every ounce of my life that I lived for Him was worth it. Therefore, don't fear. I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. You will not be ashamed on that last day. Therefore, don't fear. Number two, don't fear because, what does it say? You will forget the shame of past sins. Look at verse four. Be not confused. You'll not be disgraced. It's going to be worth it. Four, there's the next four. You will not forget the shame of your youth. Israel was filled with regret. They had done so much bad stuff that landed them over here in captivity. The fear is, I'm constantly going to carry this bag around of guilt for past actions. And no matter how much I leave this, that will never be removed. Have you ever had that fear? The fear of your actions, your sin, will just so much constantly be before you You'll never get past them. You'll never make progress. It'll always define you. Teenagers, hear this and hear it loudly. I can't tell you how many people I spend time with in counseling who are there and are struggling because of the sins and the stupid and foolish choices they made when they were teenagers or when they were in college and they bring all this regret into their relationships and it just begins to define their lives and they begin to be crushed by it. It affects their relationships and they just walk around with regret after regret after regret. And I pray, I pray for you. 
I pray for you that you would not choose the foolish path. Don't glamorize the immediate gratification. For I got 10,000 other stories that show the other side. And that's where many of us sit. Many of us sit with regret. Regret that we made bad choices. And yet, this promise is, you'll forget the shame of your stupid decisions. How will that happen? Because the Lord your maker is your God. He has sent his son for you. He has redefined you. You are no longer defined by your failures or your past mistakes. Whether they happened 10 years ago or 10 minutes ago, you are not your mistakes. You are not your failures. Because of Jesus, you don't have to live in those any longer. And that shame has been paid on the cross. And you will walk through eternity without regret because the debt has been paid and you've been set free. So you'll not forget or you will forget the shame of past sins. You will not remember them. They will not identify you. Therefore, don't be afraid. Number three, don't be afraid because you're not alone. It keeps going. The reproach of your widowhood, in verse four, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood Will rem- you will remember no more. The common thread is the sense of forgetting, but you're forgetting two different things. One is you're forgetting your past mistakes. The other is a condition issue. It's an image of a widow. What's a widow? A, a woman or a widower, a man who has lost their spouse. And what is that condition filled with? It is filled with a sense of loss and sadness and alone. The one who is with me is not there any longer. The widow's situation for the the people of Israel, they were separated, distant from God. They felt alone because of their intentional rebellion against God. They were distanced from him. They felt as the widow. Whether it's for our own sins or whether it's just a general feeling of emotional distance. We too feel alone at times. And the promise here is that God will draw near to you and you will not be alone. You see what the next image is, verse 5? Why won't you be alone? Why won't you constantly remember that you are a widow? Why won't you constantly remember that loss and that aloneness and that sadness? Because your maker is your husband. The Lord has intentionally chosen you and said, you are mine and I'm going to be with you forever. I'm not going to leave you. Any of you who are married, it is a futile hope to put all of your chips in on your earthly spouse. They'll show up late. They won't keep their word. They'll make dumb decisions. They'll have moments of great joy and other moments of just intense sadness. They'll make wise decisions and sometimes and stupid ones the next. Welcome to humanity. You thought that was only your marriage, right? Nope, every one of them. Every one of them. The hope of the people of God is not the salvation from a spouse or a future relationship. 
the hope of the people of God is that the maker of heaven and earth, the Lord of the hosts, the boss of bosses, the king of kings has looked at you in all of your grossness and has said, I choose you. It's meant to evoke the joy of that wedding day that you are his. And he has made you his own. You're not alone. He will not leave you. This is what the Redeemer promises to do. Therefore, don't be afraid. Everybody on this earth might abandon you, but your God, you will never face suffering and trial alone again because God is with you. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because you are loved in your lowest moments. Look at verse 6. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. What's the situation here? The husband is around, but he has gone away, left her alone. There's a sense of grief that's being described, or that is used to describe this woman's condition. She just feels cast off unwanted and it's in those lowest moments that God says it's you it's you that I have called that's the language of salvation that's the language of you are mine I know that personally one phrase that a dear brother gave to us when we were really struggling with our own fears and as we battle through issues of suffering like we all do. He used this phrase, and it was greatly helpful for me. That when you suffer and when you are afraid, as a child of God, you do not suffer to God's back. You suffer to his face. The face of one who at one moment can have smiles and compassion and love and at the very same moment have tears that grieve over your condition. You are not suffering to the back of God as if he's saying, I hope you get your act together and then talk to me once it goes better for you. God has not turned his back on you. He turned his back on his son so that he will never turn his back on you again. He is always facing you, always there for you, always grieving with you, always loving you. He is with you in your lowest moments. For the one who feels deserted, who feels cast off, who feels alone, he is there, not just at the height, but in the lowest spots. And he comes to you, and he kneels with you, and he gets down with you, and he says through his son's suffering, I am with you, and I love you. Therefore, don't be afraid. And number five, don't be afraid because by faith you are connected to God with a never-ending love. Listen to verses seven and eight. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face, but with everlasting, never-ending love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is talking to the people of Israel. For a moment, your destiny was punishment. You were the recipient of my anger and my wrath. 
But for the sake of my name and the sake of my promises, I will exercise compassion upon you. And if you trust in me, you will be connected to my everlasting, never-ending love. Now, we also have to work through this as believers, this side of the cross. Because ultimately, the Bible speaks that his wrath is, and his judgment are not poured out upon his people any longer because they were poured out upon his son. Jesus took the judgment and the punishment and the condemnation that we deserved. Therefore, when we face just consequences for our actions, we face them not as an enemy of God and therefore experiencing God's wrath, but as a child of God experiencing his loving discipline. You see the difference? Many of you walk around as if God is angry at you like an enemy, but the cross, the blood-soaked pages of Isaiah 53 render that null and void. And by faith in Jesus, he deals with you as a child. Disciplines you, yes, because sin must be shown to be foolish and ugly, and he must be shown to be satisfying and beautiful. But as a child, nonetheless, he loves you, and you by faith are connected to his never-ending love. Our Savior agonized for you so that you don't have to fear about ever being disconnected from his love, not by your actions and not by those outside of you. That's Romans Chapter 8. Number 6. You don't have to be afraid because your life is not tied to material possessions for joy. Look at verse 10. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace will not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. What is he saying? Think of the most cataclysmic situation where the things that you can touch and feel go away completely. Mountains move. Hills fall away. Your joy and your peace do not rest in what you can touch and taste and see. Those things can be fully ripped away. But your joy is tied to a God who has steadfast love. And through his son promises peace. Peace is the opposite of fear. He's saying, I can breathe peace into your anxious moments. And so your peace is not bound up in your materials. It's not bound up in your house or your car, in your relationships, in your bank account. It's not bound, bound up in your job or your promotions or your status or people thinking well of you. It is bound up in God's steadfast love for you. He loves you. Therefore, you don't have to be afraid if anything is taken away. You don't have to be afraid. And finally, you don't have to be afraid because he does protect his people. He protects his people. Look at verse 11. O afflicted one. You just hear the compassion of our great God speaking into the hurts of Israel. O afflicted one. Storm-tossed, those who don't feel comforted. Have you been there? Do you relate to this, feeling storm-tossed, not comforted, afflicted? He says, behold, look with your eyes. 
He says, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncle. Yeah, whatever. And I read that and I was like, how is that supposed to encourage me? I'm not getting it. Come on. I'm not getting it. These are priceless and precious jewels. Jewels that are actually referred to in the book of Revelation in order to describe a home that God is preparing for his people who trust in him. It is meant to communicate brilliance. It is meant to communicate a God who is fully resourceful and the one who will get his people to the end and who will deliver them from their trials. And so he goes on, verse 13, all your children will be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression for you shall not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near. Do you hear this? God will say, thing that makes you afraid, go this far and no further. God is showing his power and control over all evil. And his ability to wipe it off the planet when his purposes are fulfilled. Now this is when you have to begin to understand God's promises. God's promises are always fulfilled, but they are fulfilled in stages. They are fulfilled in stages. Meaning, when God says, I will make a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue that will worship me. When you and I, if you're a believer in this room, profess faith in Jesus, that promise broke into the here and now. It came true. Our hearts were awakened. And the gospel reached beyond the Jews to the nations. But it hasn't reached to all the nations. But he promises that by the end of time, there will be a representative from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And he promises that when we stand before the king face to face, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And every single promise will be fulfilled in its entirety. Their promises revealed, promises fulfilled. When someone gets healed, when you read about it in the New Testament, when you hear about it now, it is his promise for full and forever healing breaking into the here and now. It's showing that his promises are true, that he can overcome darkness. He can bring healing in the midst of brokenness. And some of you might say, well, that sounds really easy. That's a really easy way to get God off the hook in the middle of my pain. With these simple words, it's fulfilled in stages. You say he's protecting me, but I don't feel very protected. I'm in depression. I feel like people are against me all the time. I've got disease, whatever it is. And so you call this promise into question, the promise that he will protect you. But that's when we are led to not only the promises made, but the promises secured and kept by Jesus Christ. The second point is that promises are not just made. They were secured and kept in Jesus Christ. If Jesus did not come, if he did not live the perfect life and die the death that we deserve and rise from the dead and ascend to the right hand of the Father, fulfilling over 60 some odd promises, unique promises of the Old Testament, if that did not happen, we are pitiable to follow God. 
But our great God sent his son, the Israelites waiting for thousands of years for this promise to be fulfilled, and God sent his son, and he did it, and he secures all of his promises. That's why Paul says all of his promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. It is by his death, by Isaiah 53 coming to bear in the life of Jesus, him dying for our sins and rising from the dead, we can put everything in that all of his promises will be secured. So it's not just convenient talk. It's how God works. And we can trust him. We can trust him that he will protect us. And what that means is whatever befalls us, is only happening for our good. And as Tim Keller says, it is protecting us from things 10,000 times worse that could come to our lives were he not protecting us. Our God is protecting us. And when we are able to say, he has not messed up, so I'm not resigned to sadness or bitterness or frustration. No, I'm all in. I'm his child. And I in him are more than conquerors. I don't have to be afraid. I trust him. What makes us afraid is fearing that protection, fearing will he really take care of us. It's those what ifs, right? It's those what ifs. What if this happens? Or what if this happens? And we just kill ourselves with the what ifs. And as I was meditating over this, this phrase, these words came to my mind and I wrote them down. I give them to you. Fear spends more time looking at the what ifs that we don't know than resting and faithfully doing what we do know. And what do we know? Loving those right in front of us and cultivating a moment by moment trust in God's promises. Fear spends more time looking at the what ifs that we don't know. Well, what if this happens? What if this person thinks this about me? What if I don't get the promotion? What if my finances aren't met? What if my children don't do this? The what ifs, and we're really bad prophets. But it says, rather than doing, resting faithfully in what we do know, and that is loving those right in front of us, those who just God brings in our path and we just love those in front of us and cultivating a moment-by-moment trust in God. He promises to never leave us nor forsake us. And so, His promises are kept for us. They are kept for us because He gave His Son for us. They are secured for us because Romans 8.32, if He did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, then how will he not also graciously with him give us all things? If he did the hardest thing in killing his son, he can do the easiest thing, and that is fulfilling all of these promises. Therefore, he says, don't be afraid. And he says, start acting in confidence because you can take him at his word. There's only two verses that I didn't significantly allude to in Isaiah 54, in the verses 2 and 3. And these verses are the exact same theme as Isaiah 55. The exact same theme of 
act upon the promises. And this is what it says. Look at Isaiah 54, verse 2 and 3. It says, Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Don't hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes because you will spread abroad to the right and the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. You will multiply. I will add to your number. The nations will be reached. Therefore, you should do something about it. It's like if I were to tell you, okay, next year at this time, at your place, no matter the size of your place, at your place, you will host a fellowship for the entire church. We'll give you all the resources you need, but you're going to host it at your place. Okay, good. Take care. And just say, for some crazy reason, you are bound to that. What would you have to do? You'd have to start planning food. You would have to start making sure there were some porta potties, right? Because there'd be a bathroom issue at your place. You'd have to start figuring out what you're going to do for the time that we're there. You would start planning based upon the promises. The Olympic Committee has chosen Rio de Janeiro as the site of the 2016 Olympics. And they choose these sites incredibly early in order to tell these host cities, get ready, the world is coming to you. And what do they do? They create buildings and infrastructure. They make sure that transportation is good to host the world. It's been all over the news that Rio is trying to clean out their water because the water is just crazy dirty there in order to host some of these events that people will be swimming in their, in their water. But they're having to prepare, built upon this promise that the world is coming to you. And now God gives us all these promises. You don't have to be afraid. I'm with you. I'll never leave you. I'm working for the sake of my name. You can trust me. I'm going to create an inheritance for you that you will not be ashamed of. Now, do something about it. Enlarge your tents. Act upon these promises. He wants us, and hear this, to act in such a way that reveals our confidence in his promises. We go to the nations because we know it to be true that God will save people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. So we go. I spend time in the Word in the morning because I believe the promise that His Word is alive and it will not return empty in my life. We spend time in prayer because I and you, we believe the promise that God moves upon our prayers and that we are changed as we pray. It's a promise. I gather here with you in this moment because I believe God's word when he says, I will be kept from further sin by gathering with you, hearing the word and relating with you than I would be if I kept myself away from you. I would dive more into sin if I kept myself from meeting with my brothers and sisters in the Lord. So I act upon a promise. We organize ourselves here at this church. 
We organize ourselves for growth, not just trying to maintain what's happening here. Why? Because God has placed us where we are and he has promised his gospel is powerful to save. So he's also promised that he will use his people as instruments to see people come to faith in Jesus. So we have thousands upon thousands, yet I say maybe even millions of people who do not know Jesus in this triangle area and he has placed us here with the power of the gospel so we better plan on people being saved through the proclamation of the gospel. And so we organize ourselves and we plan and we strategize for growth, not just for maintenance, because of God's promises. Our schedules should reflect that God will save people. God will use us to encourage and comfort. We give because he promises he promises that if we hold on to our money, we're going to put too much confidence in our money and in our resources rather than in his power to provide. We serve our children and care for our children because he promises that he will use this generation to care for the next. Do you see it? Over and over, these are actions built upon promises and he is inviting us right now and he says, may your life reflect your belief that God keeps his word. How are we positioning ourselves in risk, in love, in the lives of others that says, God, I take you at your word. Fear keeps us from love. Promises engage us in love. And so we put confidence in the promises. And therefore, Isaiah 55 verse 1 says, come on, come on, everyone who thirsts, come. Do you hear what he's saying? Come, come everyone, not just Israelites, but the nations. This is where the promise should be pursued. You come, he says, come, come with your fears Come with your deep sadness. Come with your apathy and laziness. Come with your confusion. Anything that stands in the way, just bring it to me, he says. Listen to who he's calling for. The gospel doesn't call for those who are self-sufficient. It calls for those who realize they are spiritually broken and impoverished. Look at the words he uses. Come, everyone, not who is fully satisfied, Come those who thirst. Physical image for a spiritual reality. Those who are thirsty for something more than this world can really offer. Look at what he says. For those who have no money. This is why Jesus uses the language in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. We should be spiritually bankrupt. We are. We should believe we are. And so, who's the invitation to? The one who knows they are. This is good news. It's not fix yourself up, then come. It's come with everything. Come. Anything that stands in the way. Don't be afraid. Come. It says, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And then he asks this question, why? Why do you spend your money for that which isn't bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? 
Why? Why do we labor? When we labor for a feeling, when we labor for the ceasing of responsibility, when we labor for security on this earth and earthly things, it's a mirage. It's like the oasis. I watched Bugs Bunny a lot growing up. It's like he's going across the desert and he sees this beautiful oasis of water and he's like this and then he starts shoveling sand in his mouth because poof, the mirage goes away. Why? Why do you spend your money for that which won't satisfy? Why do you give your life for that which will not deliver? Parents, make sure that your primary aim is that your children treasure and love Jesus. Not first their intelligence or their athletic ability or their musical accomplishments. The greatest gift you can give to your kids is to refuse to mask the one aim of life. And that is Christ is enough. And if you have a passionate love for Jesus, you will love your neighbor and you will make wise choices overall and you will have the grace to handle what comes your way. Those things are great. The discipline of sports, the beauty of music, the well-roundedness of a, a good education, those are great, but they are not ultimate. May we be careful on what we make is ultimate because Jesus says, for what does it profit a man in Matthew 16 if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? What does it matter if you've got every earthly possession but you forfeit your soul? And so he says in verse 6, he says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. So many want to say, I'm just going to sow my wild oats now. Just going to live it up now. Then later, I'll get my act together. You aren't promised the next minute. We don't know what later is. Why do we keep watching the same tired movie? You know the movie, right? Person knows what's right. Person chooses the opposite of what's right for quick pleasure. And they live it up. And life is filled then with short-term pleasure and regret and shame. And then they begin to wonder what life is about. And then having been so darkened by poor choices and rebellion and shame and guilt, they don't know how to find satisfaction and relief. So they spend their lives trying things to stop the emotional pain through all kinds of other means. The whole time. The Bible says this message, seek me, draw near to me, give me all that you are, and I'll give you a peace that lasts through trials. I'll give you a love that lasts through the hardest cases. I'll give you a joy that is possible even in the heat of this crazy world. Some hear that and they turn to Jesus, but the story continues that when a trial comes, they question, they question whether living for God is really right. Yet they are forgetting the wreck that their lives was prior to Jesus. And they glamorize it as if it was a bed of roses. They become blind to the pictures provided throughout the Bible 
of those who chose their own way and were severely punished and their lives were miserable. Instead, they say, I'm going to try to handle my own life. And they either handle it by rebellion or they handle it by religion, putting the plaque on their chest, I'm a God person, but really not seeking him at all because they're skeptical and filled with the pain of some experience or trial. Wouldn't it be great if we heard and saw another movie? Wouldn't it be great if what Isaiah is inviting us into here happened when he says, listen to me gently, incline your ear to me, verse 3, come to me. What if we learned the easy way and not the hard way? What if we seek him and pursued him, not jadedly, but wholeheartedly? And we just acted in confidence that what he said was true. I just recommend that we Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 it. That's what we do. We just make that our theme. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he is going to make your paths straight or direct your paths. Trust in him with all of your heart. You and I don't know what is best for us. That's why he says in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, look what it says. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declare the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Fear comes when we believe everything depends on us and we can order our own lives. It's a tiring exertion of energy. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Just trust that he knows what's best, that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. And so it comes full circle with one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible in Isaiah 55 verse 11. He says this, Just as the rain waters and brings up stuff in the earth, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth and it will not return to me void or empty. My word will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you'll go out in joy and be led forth in peace and the mountains and the hills before you will break forth into singing and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn, there will come a cypress. Instead of the briar, will come a myrtle and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that you will not be cut off from my love. That's our destiny because God's word will not come back empty. It will succeed. It will accomplish its purpose. So God makes his promises. He secured them and kept them in Jesus Christ. And therefore, we can pursue a confident life in him, in him away from fear, empowered by action and love, looking forward to that day when we walk out in joy and in peace into his presence. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would protect your people. Protect your people from trying to handle the struggles on our own. And I ask, O oh God, that we would take you up on your invitation. That we would come, every one of us, 
And we would believe that we will receive the promises made to David on our behalf. That we will have God's love. And his love is not just for the people of Israel. It's for anyone who trusts in you. So right now, O oh God, as we take the Lord's Supper, I pray. I pray for the fearful one that you will smash that fear and you will give a confidence in you. Father, I pray for us who are just battling with joy and despair. And I ask, O oh God, that we would take you at your word. And we would arrange our lives in such a way that we act built upon confidence that your word will succeed. So, Father, I pray. I pray with all my might now that in the stillness of this moment, you would give hunger where there wasn't hunger before. You would give thirst where there wasn't thirst before. You would show how sufficient you are to those who were tempted to run elsewhere. You would help us to believe that we are blinded and you are not, and therefore your thoughts are higher than our thoughts and your ways are higher than our ways. And I ask, oh God, that we would bring it all to you, asking you to change us. Please do it in Christ's name. Amen.